This message first aired on the radio on June 10th, 2003. Now, as we've been looking at the resurrection, as we introduce the notion that really there are three resurrections relevant for the believer in Jesus Christ, we find that uh, there will be um, quite a number of questions that arise around those very concepts and around those very facts that, that we find in the Scripture. And so in order to summarize, let me say that the three resurrections I'm talking about not only are different in time, but they're different in language in the Scripture. Remember the first resurrection that we discussed was the elementary thought that every person who ever lived will rise from the dead. That is called the resurrection of the dead. This elementary notion, which is correct as long as one understands that it's not complete, is that every person will rise from the dead in a body that's prepared for eternity, one one way or another, and then they'll be judged, and there will be a judgment to each and every person. Now, that that judgment has the same subject matter is a whole different story, and that's why we have to go in and look at some of the details and the particulars, because while it is true that all men will rise from the dead, every single man will rise from the dead, and that every single man will will be judged, it is absolutely not true that every man will rise at the same time and will be judged on the same basis or on the, for the same reasons, because some of us have already been judged concerning things that others of us have not been judged for. Of course, these are some difficult things. I want to remind you that the Bible in Philippians teaches us the Apostle Paul prayed that the Philippians would be able to distinguish the things that differ. Actually, the language in the King James Version is that they would approve the things that are excellent. We'll be in the book of Philippians, hopefully, either at the end of the day today or tomorrow, to look at that uh, third resurrection. So we want to be those who can do that. We want to be those who will distinguish the things that are different as well as summarizing the things that are the same. So we don't live with an elementary knowledge. We hope that God permits us, in his good grace and in his, his wonderful blessing, we hope that God permits us to go past the elementary things or the first principles of the teaching concerning Christ and go on to be mature and understand that resurrection has something, that there's something more to the resurrection than just the resurrection of the dead. And so we look then from the concept that and the truth that everyone will rise from the dead to discover that indeed some will rise from the dead, out from the dead, leaving others in the grave for a time. You may remember if you were listening yesterday, or if you can't remember because you weren't listening, or if you can't remember because you can't remember, the Lord Jesus Christ was the first of the first fruits from the dead, and according to Romans chapter 1, verse 4, he was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection out from the dead. And you may also remember that prior to his going the way of the cross, prior to the time that he died for our sins on the cross, that in Mark chapter 9, as he was coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John, 
He told them, don't tell anyone about that transfiguration until after the Son of Man has risen out from the dead. And they wondered among themselves what this should mean, the resurrection out from the dead. They were those who had the elementary understanding and certainly believed in the resurrection of the dead, but who now needed to question and find out what it meant to be that the Lord Jesus would be raised out from the dead. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ started a a real trend, and he started a big uh, a big harvest, being the first of the first fruits. He is the beginning of a very large harvest, a very large harvest, which is Christ's resurrection, which is the first resurrection. And the, the first resurrection has multiple parts to it. I want to refer us at this point to a scripture that helps us to keep in mind how we need to take apart and rightly divide the scriptures like a good workman as Paul told Timothy said give diligence or study same thing study is diligent work it's hard work give diligence to show yourself approved unto God a workman who needs not be ashamed accurately handling or rightly dividing actually literally rightly dividing or cutting straight the word of truth you know, one of the problems we have today and why there's controversies, for example, concerning the Sabbath and Sabbath-keeping and law and so forth, is that there are so few who really work, who who really give diligence so that they can cut the Word of God straight. You know, here's Paul telling Timothy, and he's an older man to a younger man, and uh, we don't know exactly how old the older man is, and we don't know exactly how young the younger man is. As I get older, and I'm past 50, as I get older, I believe that the older man is older than I first thought and that the younger man is also older than I first thought. So I'm envisioning that, that Paul is, is quite aged, maybe 60 or so, right in there, and that Timothy, as a young man, certainly no 16-year-old and, and likely no 20-year-old, maybe a young fellow in the range of 30. I could say a lot of things about old men and young men. Today we're in an age when people want to listen to young men. Of course, that's an indication of societal wickedness when that happens. Not because young men are more wicked than old men. They're not. They're just they're more ignorant than old men. The reason for that is merely experience. You find that wicked kings of Israel listen to young men and instead of the older men, and Rehoboam listened to the counsel of the young men instead of the old men and raised the taxes very high and really divided Israel because of it. Maybe there's a lesson there for someone. But uh, this old man to this young man it was good advice. He said, you be a workman. Now, here's another thing that the apostle could do. He could talk about being a workman because he he was a workman. Not only was he a workman in the Scriptures, but the Apostle Paul was a working man. He worked with his hands. Brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, friends, we need more working men. And that's working men of every kind. But especially the preaching man needs to be a working man. And so when the Apostle Paul, who was a tent maker, 
And uh, maybe you've heard me say when I've traveled abroad, people who are on uh, contributed means abroad, and when I tell them I'm earning my living by working, they'd say I'm a tent maker. No, uh, Paul was a tent maker. I'm not a tent maker. I, I, don't, I couldn't make a tent. I have a hard time setting up a tent. In fact, if I'm going to go camping, I need to practice setting up the tent a couple times before I'll go. But I'm a computer guy. That's what I've done for working for quite so many years. So I'm not a tent maker, but Paul was a tent maker. And he told the young man that he was teaching, his son in the faith, Timothy, he said, give diligence to show yourself approved unto God, a workman, cutting straight the word of God. And as I think about that, I think, who needs to cut straight more than a tent maker? After all, here's a fellow that's going to have heavy material, and he's going to have some kind of cutting device, which he'll have to look after his tools to make sure they're sharp. But even his tools being sharp, as he becomes older and his eyes begin to fade, he has to rely on the skill that he developed from being a young man and repeating over and over and over again so that he makes a tent, and that's how he made his living, as he needed to. And uh, he'd have to cut straight. And I think about the strong hands that he had developed over time. Imagine cutting a heavy material like that and then stitching it with your hands. How much he knew that the material needed to be cut straight and how strong he'd have to be in his older years to cut that and how, how much muscle memory his arms would have to have and his hands would have to have as the light would be poor and as the need to cut straight could depend less and less upon his failing eyes. So here, here's a man that knew what he was talking about in vast detail when he told Timothy that he needed to be a workman in the Scriptures. And you know, this is a problem, friends. It's a problem and it's an opportunity. Let me tell you, there are few that are working hard in the Scriptures today. By my experience, that's what I'm saying. That's what my experience is. Very few that work hard. None of us know the Scriptures as we ought to know it. The Scriptures themselves say that that's true. And yet, the Scriptures are so much overlooked that we don't even read them, let alone diligently work in them. And therefore, we start cutting crooked and making a mess out of the perfect material that God has given us to build the perfect tent here below. And our tent suffers from it. We, we suffer personally from it. Our churches suffer personally from it. We have no result of the hard work in the Scriptures that we ought to have because, because men do not work hard in the Scripture. So we, we hope to work hard in the Scripture and, uh, and not to impress any man. After all, when we have a range of, of ignorant uh, Christians, uh, really a, a large range of ignorant Christians and even more ignorant uh, uh, people who are lost, they'll come to you and say, wow, you really know the Scriptures. I've had people tell me, well, you really know the Scriptures. That's just not true. It's just demonstrable of the broad ignorance that's that's out there. Frankly, we don't study to show ourselves approved unto men. We take the tack that the Apostle took in 1 Corinthians chapter Four, it's a small thing to be judged of you or in man's day. I know nothing against myself, but I'm not therewith justified. The one who judges me is the Lord, and I want to be pleasing to the Lord. That's my hope in teaching the Scriptures, and it should be your hope also in, in working in the Scriptures. And if you're a young man today, let me tell you something. 
one of my prayers around this broadcast is there would be a young man who desires to know the Scriptures and to work in them and who gets his excitement from opening them and seeing the things that, that differ and appreciating them and who gets excited like I got excited when I was a young man at things new and old being brought out of the Scripture. And if you're such a young man today and you're, and you're being helped even a little bit by this broadcast, I'm, I'm rejoicing about that. I'm, I'm hoping for that. And I'll also advise you this. Give yourself entirely to the Word of God. It will not interfere with any other thing in your life, and God will prosper you as needed, and God will organize your life as needed. You just give yourself to the Scriptures. Well, I, I've, uh, now I've, I've gone down that pathway. Let, let me bring us back to the fact that the Scriptures need to be rightly divided. Rightly divided. And that, uh, that cutting straight is the same thing by which God will give us a straight path to walk. So we have Christ's resurrection, we have our own resurrection, and this resurrection also includes others who are not a part of those of us who believe in Jesus Christ during this present time. That, that first resurrection has three pieces to it. So in, uh, one other scripture that helps us divide properly the word of truth is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and verse uh, 32, which I will read verse 31 with it. Whether, therefore, you eat or drink, or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give none offense, neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. This is a three-way division of the human race. You can look at the human race in three-way division two different ways. Uh, the human race divides by the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. That's a discussion for another day. The human race also divides among three, Jews, Gentiles, Church of God. I heard someone today, just today, say, I'm both a Jew and a Christian because they were a believing Jew. That's a mistake that is afoot today. That's just not true. We have many Christians who were formerly Jews and they become troubled. They become troubled spiritually, whether they know it or not. They invite spiritual trouble by trying to be both a Jew and a Christian. There's enmity in the world against uh, Christ, and uh, that, that enmity comes from the Jew first and also the Gentile. And the Word of God is the power of God unto salvation to two groups of people, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And after that, they are neither Jew nor Gentile, but are one new man in Christ. And so you have three groups, Jews, Gentiles, Church of God. I was once a Gentile. I am not a Gentile. I'm a Christian. I'm a heavenly person. I've been born again, born from above. Not only am I not going to live like a Gentile, but the reason I'm not going to live like a Gentile is that I am not a Gentile. I am a child of God, and I'm part of the church, which is his body. A Jew, when he receives Christ as his Savior, is no more a completed Jew than I'm a completed Gentile. Let me tell you, there's no such thing as a completed Jew. There's only another member, a new man in Christ, another member of the Church of God. And so these three groups each also have a place in the first resurrection or Christ's resurrection. Not all three of these groups 
are part of the church, which is his body today, or the body, we may say, the body of Christ today. There's no Jew in the body of Christ. There's no Gentile in the body of Christ. That's the wonderful teaching of the book of Ephesians. But there will be Jews and there will be Gentiles in the kingdom of God and of Christ in the first resurrection. These are refined truths that we need to look at and we need to distinguish. And if we'll look at them, uh, will not be misled into so many of the very variances, so many of the arguments, so much of the trouble that we have today. And we're going to look at that right after this short break. We're talking about the first resurrection and how there's three parts, how there are three participating groups in it. And uh, we want to look at Revelation chapter 20 to examine that. And... Uh, I'll just begin reading from the beginning of the chapter. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit. That's really the abyss. It would read better as abyss rather than bottomless pit. And a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the abyss, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years should be fulfilled, and after that he must be loosed a little season. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them, and I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads, or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now, there's more to be said. And so we'll skip down, and we'll read in verse 11, for the sake of time, we're skipping those other verses. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books, according to their works." And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and the death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. So we have the first resurrection laid out here, then we have a thousand years of time, and then we have the second death, and uh, we have another resurrection, and we have the second death. So the first resurrection, however, is therefore a thousand years apart. This lays out for us the septenary arrangement of time according to the scriptures. Sabbath, really, we carry that word across, Sabbath. It's the word for seven, and it's the word for seven in more than one language. It is simply the seventh. And uh, Sabbath day, we put the word day on it just to distinguish that that's what we're talking about. But it really means just seven. And the uh, Apostle Peter tells us in his epistle, 
to be mindful. He said, Beloved, be mindful of this one thing. A day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. And so when we understand that, then we realize that the scriptures are laid out as no other book. The word of God is laid out for us in such a way as to completely take our interest. And we learn from this that there is a septenary or a sevenfold arrangement of scriptures, not only in the creation account where God took that from verse 2 of Genesis uh, chapter 1 and had his six days of creation, and then the seventh day he rested, but also putting that together with the prophecies, uh, with the prophecy or the teaching of Second Peter, when the Apostle Peter tells us to be mindful of this one thing, we now realize that there are seven days to the creation and that there are 7,000 years to the time that is organized around our Lord Jesus Christ. You may remember that we looked briefly at the book of Hebrews, and we learned there that by Jesus Christ, the King James Version says, by Jesus Christ, by whom he created the worlds, and we realize that that was an unfortunate rendering because what it really should say is that he framed or outlined the ages. The Lord Jesus Christ did indeed create all things. Uh, That's without controversy. He's the word of God. God said and things were. He is the one who created all things. All things were created by him and for him. That's also elementary truth. What is beyond elementary truth is that the ages were framed according to the word of God, and our Lord Jesus Christ is the word of God. And how were these ages framed? Well, these ages, or time, is hung on the seven-day pegs that God stuck out into human history. And so all of time is organized around seven days. Day with the Lord is as a thousand years, a thousand years as is a day. And we look forward to the seventh day, or the seventh 1,000 years. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. That has nothing to do with the Sabbath of Friday night to Saturday night, and it certainly has nothing to do with Sunday morning. I understand that people mean well, but I'm tired of people meaning well and being wrong in Scripture, and so we'll come together Sunday morning, sing a couple of hymns, and somebody almost invariable will say, this is a day that the Lord has made. We'll rejoice and be glad in it. If that's the application of that scripture, every day is a day that the Lord has made, and every day we'll rejoice and be glad in it. But in fact, the the psalmist is looking forward to that millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ when Jesus Christ personally visits the earth and says with astonishment and, I think, a glimpse of knowledge, this is the day the Lord has made. We'll rejoice and be glad in it. Today, we go forth bearing his reproach. He's a man of sorrows. We go forth with our sorrows. When we come together in the church, we should bring our sorrows with us. We don't need to paste a smile on our faces. We're not told to to laugh with those who weep and to weep with those who laugh. We weep with those who weep. We rejoice with those who rejoice. And frankly, a lot of the Christian life is is weeping. 
We know that the shortest verse in Scripture is Jesus wept. We have no verse Jesus laughed. So here is this wonderful truth that a day with the Lord is is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day, and that last day, that seventh day, is the thousand years wherein all of those in the first resurrection will rejoice. Here in Revelation chapter 20, we find that those who are martyred during the time of the Great Tribulation, and that would be both Jew and Gentile, these are raised. Those of us who will rise from the dead and be caught up together with the Lord in the air will now become a single kingdom with them. Therefore, the kingdom of God and of Christ will be composed of saved, born-again Christians who make up the body of Christ and as such are part of Christ. And his kingdom will also be made up of redeemed, born-again Jews who are Jews and redeemed, born-again Gentiles who are Gentiles. And all of these will come into the first resurrection. Some of these who are part of the first resurrection will have an even better standing up or resurrection. You may recall the word resurrection has to have a context. The, the word translated resurrection is the word for standing up. We have some who stand up, who will stand up to tremendous joy. All of those in the first resurrection will stand up to great joy. Those who stand up at the end of the thousand years, in what we might call the second resurrection, the scripture doesn't call it the second resurrection, we call it the general resurrection, they will, some will rise to, to joy if their names are found written in the book of life, and others will stand up to horrible eternal judgment. This is the second death. So, now that we see that the first resurrection is comprised of three groups of people, we realize that we don't have to worry about whether we're in it or not. We're in the first resurrection. The first of the first fruits is our Lord Jesus Christ. Those who are in Christ are part of the first fruits resurrection, and then he will have the rest of his harvest at the end of this age prior to the beginning of the next age, wherein he will have a kingdom of priests, both kings in the heaven and, and priests on the earth. Now, let me just leave that, and I realize I leave that with, with many very good uh, questions and uh, very good pursuits in mind, and remind us that we, while we don't rise to this judgment at the great white throne that is given here in Revelation 20, like the lost dead do, we do rise up to a judgment. But it's not the judgment for our sins. It is the judgment seat of Christ. And you remember that we discussed uh, yesterday, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in body according to what we have done, whether good or bad, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord or the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. Friends, before our Lord Jesus Christ, 
returns to earth to rule and reign over this earth for a thousand years. He's going to qualify his own people in the heavens at the judgment seat of Christ. And our hope, the one hope, according to Ephesians chapter 4, that every Christian has, is that at that day, when we rendezvous with him, and there's no question that we'll rendezvous with him, that in that day we will have great boldness, that is, great freedom of speech, that we will not be ashamed, but that we will be found pleasing to him. And friends, you're going to stand. If you've believed in our Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to be at the judgment seat of Christ, whether you want to be there or not. You know, some people talk about the resurrection or the rapture of the church as if it's going to be a wonderful, joyful affair at that moment for every single person in it. Not necessarily, my friend. Abraham rejoiced to see the Lord's day. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ said about Abraham. He said he rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it, and he was glad. And then he told the Pharisees who rejected him and the scribes, the leaders of Israel who rejected our Lord Jesus Christ, he said, don't say you've got your father to be Abraham. They told him in John chapter 8, Abraham's our father. We've never been in bondage, and Abraham's our father. There they were in Roman bondage. There they were with a false Edomite king ruling over them, the wicked Herod, and they tried to puff themselves up and prop themselves up like so many cardboard men and say, we've never been in bondage. Abraham is our father. And the Lord Jesus Christ trumped them and said this, if Abraham were your father, you would do the works of Abraham. Well, what works did Abraham do? When the Lord Jesus Christ visited Abraham, and he did visit Abraham, Abraham was in his tent in the cool of the day, and two angels and the Lord Jesus Christ came to visit Abraham. Abraham received the Lord. And so the Lord Jesus Christ told them, If you were of your father Abraham, you do the works of Abraham, which was to receive him when he came. And Abraham ran and got a kid, and he was like a, a little child so happy to entertain the Lord when he visited his tent. And yet Israel, the leaders of Israel, wicked as many of them were, when the Lord came to visit their tent, they wickedly sought to kill him. And we'll have to be looking at that here in a short while as to why they wanted to do that and what really upset their apple cart so much. But we will rendezvous with our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. And then he said, I'll receive you to myself. And so when the Lord comes, when the Lord Jesus Christ comes and the trump of God sounds, the dead in Christ will rise first. We that are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the air, and we will commence at that moment to be before our Lord Jesus Christ, and the judgment seat of Christ will then take place. And what kind of a judgment will that be? Well, that will be a judgment of how we conducted ourselves in the Christian life. It'll be a judgment conducted in resurrection. We'll all have resurrection bodies. We'll all have bodies of glory. We'll all have glorified bodies fashioned like the Lord Jesus Christ's body. But then we will be evaluated. Oh, I don't know if we'll be evaluated in front of everybody else or if we'll just be evaluated personally. I don't know if it'll take years or if it's instantaneous. I know this. I will be made manifest to myself. 
I will find out what manner of person I am, and I won't have any argument at that time. I just hope my desire is that I will be bold at that day, that I'll have great freedom of speech, that I'll be very happy to see the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the Scripture says there's one of two ways that will appear at this time. We'll either be bold and have great freedom and be happy to see him, or we'll be ashamed and we'll shrink back at his coming. And then each one will receive good or evil according to what he has done. Now some say, well, what do you mean receive evil? Well, you'll either receive some kind of reward, if there's any works that remain, you receive some kind of reward, or you'll receive some kind of a catastrophe, some kind of horrible, a horrible sense of a loss because of what you could have had, because that you squandered your Christian life. Christian friend of mine, do you think that you can squander your Christian life? Do you think that you can ignore the love that God the Father has and not have any of his love and love this present world and be completely unimpacted at the judgment seat of Christ? Let me tell you, at that day in resurrection, when sin no longer has power in your life, when sin has no presence in your life, in that day you'll be ashamed at the way you conducted your Christian life if you've conducted a shameful Christian life. And that's something that the apostle knew. So he said, knowing therefore the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. He desired this very thing. Now, let's look at some pleasant news about that. We'll turn to Philippians the book of Philippians, and we'll look at what possibly we can enjoy at that time uh, at the judgment seat of Christ. And we'll look at that in just a minute. We're looking now at the third resurrection. This is the standing up that is found in Philippians chapter 3, and this is the only place in Scripture where this unique phrase can be found. So, we now know that there is the the simpler thought that everyone will rise from the dead, both good and evil. Then we know that there's the more well-defined thought that some will rise in the first resurrection. They will rise out from among the dead, leaving the rest of the dead in the graves. And even further, we've looked at, at the fact that the first resurrection has some pieces to it. It has a Christian piece, the Church of God, which will be raised and raptured. It has a Jewish piece to it where believing Jews will also be raised in the first resurrection, and there's a Gentile piece in it where believing Gentiles will be raised. There will also be living Jews who come through the Great Tribulation, who are part of the first resurrection, and living, or I might say surviving Gentiles who also come through that time. Now, all of these things, therefore, are part of the first resurrection. There is a resurrection piece, and we might call it a rapture piece, although we can just say it this way. There's a resurrection from the dead, and there's a taking up of the living in every case. There's the sleeping Christian, he said to be sleeping. There's the sleeping, believing Jew, such as Daniel, for example, or David, or Moses, or Caleb, or Joshua, or so many others. And then there will be also those who are alive at the time of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are those Gentiles who have believed in the past, such as 
Rahab the harlot, such as Nebuchadnezzar, and such as and I'm sure there are very, very many, even millions and millions, who have believed in the past and who will yet believe, and I trust there will be many, many millions, even billions, yet who will believe after the Lord Jesus Christ has taken his body out of this world. So now at the judgment seat of Christ, there are those of us who have already passed from death into life and who already have a deposit, and this is something I already have. I've passed through death into life, so have you if you believed in Christ, and I have a deposit or a down payment on my resurrection, and that down payment is the new nature that I've been given. And uh, the person of the Holy Spirit has been sent to the earth here to be our companion, our comforter. He's the one who calls us alongside so that we can follow our Lord Jesus Christ. So we have these things here below right now, and we're certain to be at the judgment seat of Christ in, in a resurrection body. But now here's what's not certain, and this is what drove the Apostle Paul. We're in Philippians chapter 3, where he says, what things were gained to me, verse 7, those I counted loss for Christ, yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them rubbish or dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him, here's three things, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. If by any means, if by any means I might attain unto, literally, the out-resurrection out from the dead. That's literally what it says. This phrase found only in this place of Scripture. And I remember when I first learned this, and I first began to, to see exactly what the Scripture said, I, I used some of the good language helps that are around. Uh, by the way, that Bible I told you about that you can download has good language helps for you. You will see that this phrase is very peculiar. And we ought to suspect and expect that it's a peculiar phrase, because the apostle is talking about attaining something, and he never talks about attaining eternal life. That discussion is just about merely receiving. So here he's talking about attaining something, achieving something. We could even say achieving something. And what does he want to, what is it that he hopes to to receive there? What does he hope to attain to? What is out in front of him that he's not certain about? This is this outstanding out from among the dead. And uh, I like the word outstanding because that's really what this says, that I might obtain unto the outstanding from the dead. We could put it this way. The Apostle Paul hopes that he has an outstanding Christian life not as men see it, but as the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the judge of us, sees it at the judgment seat of Christ. And that's why he desired beyond eternal life that he would know him. Now, you say, well, we have to know him to believe in him. The Bible knows of two ways of knowing things. 
One is to know instinctively. There are certain things we know, we just know them. We know them instinctively. For example, all men know that God created the heavens and the earth. All men know his deity and his Godhead from the things that they see with their eyes. There's not a person anywhere who doesn't know that there's a God. Everybody knows that. Those who deny it are just liars, and that's why I don't really care to take up discussions with those who deny that God's a creator. They're lying to themselves, and then they, they want to lie to me and to you. So I don't even want to discuss with those people until they acknowledge the truth that the Bible says they know that there is a God, that his deity and Godhead are known from what their eyes see. But the Apostle now says that I may know him because he wanted to get to know. And this is to know intimately or to know deeply and to know experientially. To know experientially. And this is the way that we learn things. See, I can say that I know Jesus Christ as my Savior, but I'm still getting to know him because this is experience that you have. And, of course, the Scripture admonishes us in Romans chapter 5 to add to our faith knowledge and to our knowledge experience. And Titus is called to prove all things, uh, that is to say, experience them. Just as a man might prove an automobile, I guess men used to prove horses, I, I don't know anything about that, but you get a new vehicle, you want to take it out and you want to prove it. The salesman may have told you this vehicle will go the speed limit in uh, two seconds, or maybe even faster than that. And you take it out on the highway and you prove it and see how it uh, handles on the curves and see how it uh, how it functions in in the straightaway to see if it if it shudders and all this. You, you it's not that it won't do it; it's that you expect that it will do it, and you prove these things that I may know him experientially and the power of his resurrection. Now we don't we don't know the power of his resurrection until we experience it. The Lord Jesus Christ has redeemed us from all penalty due to sin. And yet we still know the power of sin in our lives. In fact, that's one of the unhappy experiences we have by having two natures. We have an old nature which sins. We have a new nature which can't sin. And we have the unpleasant experience as Christians to know the power of sin despite the fact that we've been forgiven all penalty of sin. What we want to experience in Christ is the power of his resurrection, or the power, really, which is the power to resist sin, which is the power to resist sin. That's why this scripture tells us in James, blessed is the man who endures temptation, who gets to know this power. He endures temptation. He doesn't give in to it. He endures testing, because when he is tried, which is later, which is later at the judgment seat of Christ, he'll receive a crown. He'll receive the crown of life. And so there are there are crowns, there are rewards, there are wonderful prizes, not that we earn, but that we win available to us at the judgment seat of Christ. And the Apostle Paul said, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. I want to know the power of his endless life. I want to know the power of his resurrection out from the dead and the fellowship of his sufferings and let me tell you it's a horrible thing if you suffer as an evildoer although we we all deserve to suffer as evildoers 
But it's a wonderful blessing today that the Christian, who once was only an evildoer, now can identify with the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me tell you, God arranges for you. You don't have to arrange these things yourself. God will arrange for you. If you will identify yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ and others who also call upon the Lord Jesus Christ out of a pure heart, actually just simply desiring to do that will bring to you the fellowship of the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ, the fellowship of the rejection that this world has for the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is those things, knowing him personally, deeply, experientially, knowing the power of of his endless life because he is resurrected out from the dead, knowing the fellowship of his sufferings and a public identification with him results in the transformation together of us to be like our Lord Jesus Christ, being made conformable, really unto his death, being made conformable together unto the victorious death that he had, which was, a, which was a triumph over Satan and and sin and death. And God wants us also to triumph. Well, we're out of time. That happens to preachers. We run out of time. Uh, we'll take this up again tomorrow. God bless you for listening.